fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now enjoy the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Ariel Roldan, pastor of the Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist Churches in the Michigan Conference. And now, here's Pastor Ariel. We want to be continuing with our marriage series this morning. And uh, this morning's message is a very special one, especially in the Bible. And I pray that it will be a tremendous source of encouragement and instruction for all of us. So I invite you to bow your heads with me and pray. Father, this message, this topic especially, is very near and dear to your heart. As a church, Father, we kind of shied away from discussing this topic, at least how it is presented in the Bible. So, Father, I pray for your grace that you will help me express it and share it in a way that will bless us, Lord. Thank you for this gift. We pray that we can understand it better through your word. And through your spirit, Father, please guide us into the truths of this subject. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to give you a bit of comfort or encouragement that this sermon is rated G. So it has been edited for content. <laughs> I'm very much aware of the audience demographics, and so don't feel that there's going to be anything inappropriate or vulgar or any of that nature. It would not be reflective of how the Bible talks about it. That website that will lead you to find audio resources that I have that supplement this morning's message in a more candid way that applies in the context of adult living. This morning's message is going to be for the whole church, for young and old alike. We're going to be looking at covenant marriage and the subject of sex. And before we do that, we need a foundation because found out today a good friend of mine just recently bought himself a saltwater tank. And I think about fish, whether in sweet water or salt water, they don't know that they're in water because their whole life they're in water. And we are in the United States in 2021, but we don't really know why we think the way we think in the United States in 2021. We didn't just think the way we do. Our society doesn't think the way it thinks in a vacuum. There's a trajectory. And as Christians, we need to understand a bit of our history because you don't know what you're thinking about until somehow that is brought to your attention. And I appreciated the discussion that I had yesterday with someone that said, you know, time and history can help you reveal and identify some things. It's a very insightful statement. Well, when you look at the Bible and you look at the Old Testament, that's the biggest part of the Bible. The way people that lived in that time and the way that their minds were affected by God's revelation affected how they viewed reality. One of the core components of how Hebrew people view reality was themselves, how they viewed themselves. And it's very simple the way they view themselves. It came out of Genesis 1 and 2. And God breathed into the nostrils of men, and men became a living soul. They saw themselves as a complete unit. 
as one complete unit. History goes, we're going into the New Testament, same worldview, same worldview by Jesus, by the apostles. Some centuries go by and something happens to the Christian church. It becomes legal and accepted by Rome. Thus comes the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. What does that mean? Well, this is what it means. You had Babylon, Medo-Persia. Who knows who followed the kingdom of Medo-Persia? Greece. Greece did not just expand the furthest out through Alexander the Great. What expanded through Greek, Greek thinking was Platonic and Aristotelian worldviews. What is that? Different applications, but one main one, and is this. Listen carefully. It was introduced through Greek philosophy, the idea that humans have a dual nature that came to be known as dualism. All that really means is you're not a whole. You're actually two. The real you is the spirit somewhere inside of you. The outside you, that physical part of you, is only a shell. It's a prison. All pagan religions basically function on the premise of some spiritual entity within us that through their practice or death is freed and allowed to escape into real experience, be it nirvana, utopia, whatever it's called. It's not compatible with the biblical view of heaven. So what, pastor? Well, this is the reason why many churches don't talk about sex. In the Greek mindset, brought about by Aristotle and Plato, this was their premise. Anything that is of the spiritual realm, including your spirit, is good, is perfect, is beautiful. But anything of the material, physical realm, including your body, is imperfect, broken, and ugly. It is bad. It's evil. The material world is evil. The only good is the spiritual. And we are composed of that nature. We are two things blended into one. We have this spirit, which is the real you inside of you. That's the real good in you. And we can teach you disciplines and practices and religious rites by which that spirit can be set free from this cage, from this prison house called the body. Well, that worldview got sucked into the Christian church. And if you start putting the dots together, this was Satan's way of putting a foundation that would distort how we see everything about ourselves, including sex. Some of us are not aware that Plato and Aristotle have a direct bearing upon you and I and the way we relate to sex as Christians, not as humans, as Christians. There's something that has happened to our minds because of the entrance of sin. We know from experience and we know from the scriptures that whenever something comes into our radar labeled as forbidden or taboo, it automatically attracts us. 
whenever you are told this is something you should not read, this is something you should not watch, that's why I'm careful with telling you, don't watch this movie or don't watch this show because I'm actually giving it a commercial. Don't play these video games. Which one did the pastor say I'm not, I'm not supposed to? I wonder why I can't play that video game. I'm going to find out myself. So that's the catch-22 that we find ourselves in trying to instruct others about what is good and what is evil. Because the moment we find out that something should not be done, or we shouldn't eat something, or we shouldn't drink something, that's the moment we go and buy it. My dad gave us long lectures about smoking to my brother and I. My, my dad used to smoke. My mom used to smoke. That was a very common thing in Argentina. Most of them started at that time in the 70s. Most uh, Argentinians began smoking by the age of 10, 11, usually by a family member giving them a cigarette. It's not that different here in America, by the way. My first summer job, working landscaping at a community college. A lot of my friends, co-workers, during break, 15-year-olds would have a little rectangle in the back pocket. It wasn't their wallet. And they would offer us menthol Newports. I still remember the brand. And I still remember taking one. And I still remember letting him light it up and me sucking on it a couple of times and spitting it out and coughing and gagging and having it go into my eyes. And I praise the Lord for that experience. Because my friend Luis did not have that experience and he smokes still today. And that's where it started, summer job. And it started because our parents told us, don't you ever smoke. Don't ever, don't try it. It's evil, it's horrible, it's this and that. But here's my 15-year-old co-worker doing little donuts, smoked donuts with it. And I'm thinking that is the coolest thing in the planet. In America, we have a lot of sayings that there's a lot of truth in. One of them is that curiosity, what did I do to the cat? All is speaking of is sinful nature. So here's the principle, right? When something that is good is labeled as being evil, we get an unhealthy interest in it, an obsessed interest in it. When something that is actually good gets labeled as forbidden, Oh, we shouldn't talk about this. You should don't ask too many questions. When something that is good gets labeled as evil, we get this unsanctified, unwarranted obsession with it. At the other extreme, which is this extreme of something good being labeled as evil primarily dominates the Christian landscape. This happens in church. But when something good is made into a God, that's happening in the world. In the world, the way that sexuality is presented in the programming in the entertainment, through the media, through music. I don't have to listen to the songs. I can just look at the musician's persona and the image they're trying to convey. Sex is worshipped by our world. It is their God. So in the Bible, there's nothing new, by the way. This idea, this phenomena is not new, except that there was a time when synagogues talked freely and openly about the subject of sexuality. It wasn't until the Christian church adopted Greek theology, Greek philosophy, the sexuality just got thrown out of church. And we didn't talk about it for a reason. This dualism has implications why we don't talk about it in church, why some of us as parents have yet to talk to our children, 
And some of us as parents are not even sure how we're going to engage this subject with our children. And I've said this already in a previous sermon. The Bible does not endorse the view that ignorance sustains innocence. Ignorance does not protect innocence. If anything, ignorance put innocence at risk. From the book Marriage Covenant, Samuel Bakyoki states, Thus salvation was perceived as the liberation of the soul from the prison house of the body. This dualistic teaching greatly influenced Christian thought through the centuries to the point that gradually many Christians abandoned the biblical view of the resurrection of the body, replacing it with the Greek concept of the immortality of what? Soul. And this has a direct bearing on how you view sex. Some of us this morning may have come from homes where your dad never talked to you about it. If I were to ask you to raise your hands, I bet you that many of us men would raise our hands and say, yeah, my dad, he talked to me about it when I was in my 20s, about 18 years too late. If ever. I don't blame my dad. My dad was never given any kind of instruction from his dad. So this is perpetual. And it's cultural. And my dad comes from a Pentecostal background. My mom comes from a Catholic background. This subject was just not discussed at home. So it's not a Catholic problem or a Protestant problem. It's a Christian problem because of Augustine and Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas. They're the ones that embrace this and package this in a way that has made us apprehensive, uncomfortable with the subject to the demise of our children. The, <laughs> my dad, sometimes we hear camp meeting sermons, I would say, you have to have the talk with your children. And my dad was dreading about having the talk with me and my brother. I think I must have been 13, 14 maybe. We had just finished dinner and we were watching Bonanza. I don't know if you know what that show is. It's a show about cowboys. My dad loved cowboys. Watching Bonanza and every Bonanza show, of course, there was a fist fight because we, we want to see a fist fight. And in this particular fist fight, one of the guys kicked the other guy between the legs and the other guy dropped end of the fight. So I turned to my dad and I said, Dad, why does it hurt so much when we get kicked there in soccer and stuff? My dad was like, this is the moment. I'm landing the eagle right now. This is when the talk's going to happen. And my brother and I didn't see it coming. Next thing you know, my dad's talking about genitalia, sperm, ovarian, tubes. I'm like, ah, I just asked why it hurts there, dad. Don't talk. Can we go back to watching Bonanza, please? Ah, la, 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 la. <laughs> my dad did a fine job, except that that was the only time. So let me tell you this morning, God does not want you to have the talk. He wants you to talk. When you rise up, when you go about, and when you lay down, when your children ask you questions, talk. When they're, they're not asking you questions, talk. Talk about these things because it is natural and it's beautiful and God created it. There is some a lot of vestige of this idea, more so than we realize. This notion that the spiritual realm is good and the physical is, is bad, 
flies right in the face of the very first chapter of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Torah. Genesis 1.31, Then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed, it was what? What had God just made? Angels, spiritual beings, spiritual worlds. What did God just finish making? Trees, pears, pizza. No, that wasn't there yet. He made humans. He made animals. Everything being physical, including us. And when God looks at his, the physical world that he has just created, he calls it very good. By the third century Christianity, they were no longer looking at the Old Testament. They were trying to eschew and distance themselves from anything and everything that was associated with Judaism, including Torah, unfortunately. And in doing so, it became that much more attractive to embrace the Platonic and Aristotelian view that only the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. Psalms 139 verse 14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You and I have this unique attribute that when God created us, He didn't just create us as a whole. He didn't just create us physical. He made us in His image. And that manifestation of His image is not through some ethereal, abstract little thing floating inside of me. It is my physicality. It is my brain. There are my senses, my muscles, my skeletal system. All of that reveals God's image. All of it reveals God's glory. Augustine is the most responsible for Christianity's negative view of sex and all that is related to this act. He concluded that since the sexual act, listen to this carefully, he concluded that since the sexual act was the means for procreation, it was also the means by which original sin was transmitted from parents to their children. Thus, in his mind, sex in and of itself was a sinful act, even if practiced within the marriage context. You do a little bit of history and you'll find in some museums in Europe beds from some centuries ago, and these are the married beds, and here's the husband's side, and here's the woman's side, and in between them, there's this plank, this wooden plank between them. There's pajamas that were for the nuptial night, that were openings only for the genitalia, because God forbid you have any pleasure through this sinful act of procreation. Those were Christians. Those were Christians. And if you don't think that, you know, well, that's centuries ago, Pastor, we're far past that. The sexual revolution, I mean, that's the 60s and 70s. We're in America, Pastor. Certainly, we have none of that affecting us. Yes, we do. I had a Hebrew professor named Jacques Dukan who challenged me one time, realizing that I also had been affected. This worldview was inside of me. And it's something as simple as praying for food. I didn't realize that for almost 35 plus years, when I would pray, I didn't feel like if I was eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, if I, I need to pray for this. God, please bless the food that I'm about to partake that it may nourish me. That is an Aristotelian Platonic prayer. Hebrew people, Jewish people never prayed like that about their food. This is how Hebrew people pray. Father, I bless you for the food you provided for me. Hebrew people don't ask God to bless the food. Hebrew people bless God for the food. Hebrew people recognize the food is the blessing already. 
Jesus affirmed that when he said that God in heaven, the Father, he causes his sun to shine upon the just and the unjust. They are atheists that never pray over the lasagna. Do they get indigestion over that? Or do they get nourishment and life and sustaining power, life-sustaining power? God keeps everybody alive. So we don't have to ask him to bless my peanut butter and jelly so that I will get the nourishment that it has. God's already put it in there by his grace, by his love. And so the food, I don't need God to add a blessing to it. It's the blessing God has given me today for it. So I express gratitude by blessing him. There's much more that is in our mindset that comes directly from Augustine and Thomas, who borrowed heavily from Aristotle and Plato. So this morning, for ourselves as married couples, for ourselves as parents, for ourselves as single individuals, as teenagers, as young adults, we're going to go to the Bible for Sex 101. And here it is. We're looking at it right there. This is the basic foundation upon which we can build upon sex education for ourselves, sexual education for our children, for our grandkids. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Following says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. I'm only separating them for visual distinction, but the verse runs straight. But in these statements, in these two verses, God is helping you as a Christian. God is helping you as a parent. God is helping you as a single young adult, as a teenager, to understand something foundational about sex. And here it is. Before God describes sex as a verb down here, be fruitful and multiply, those are actions. Before God speaks about sex as an action, he speaks of it as a noun. He speaks of it as identity. God made them male and female. That is sex education 101. You want to understand about sex, you need to understand what it means to be a man. You need to understand what it means to be a woman. Which I was speaking with one of our elders recently that the way our government and our world is going, this is being attacked right now at the foundation where it is being blurred as to what you are as a male or a female. Now there are other options out there that you can pick. You can identify, you can choose for yourself what you are and what you are not. And it's negating some foundational aspects to our own detriment. We will see in just a bit how detrimental it is for me to bypass understanding sexuality as a noun and skipping right into the act of the verb. Our society has bypassed this first part because it does not want to hear that we have a creator. It does not want to hear that we were designed fearfully and wonderfully by a loving creator. It doesn't want that because of the sinful nature. We want ourselves to create ourselves. That's what is in the scriptures. You have the, the strong injunctions. We are his creatures. We have not created ourselves. God created you with a function and a purpose, male and female. There is, of course, plenty of identical patterns between male and female. Women have two eyeballs. Men have two eyeballs. We have 10 fingers. They have 10 fingers. But if you and I were in a desert and we saw a skeleton, just a skeleton, 
we will be able to tell if that skeleton belonged to a man or a woman. The angle of the pelvis, the opening in the pelvic area, that would tell you whether this was a man or a woman. The elbows, the joints, there's this unique attributes to the female joint in the elbows that allow for easier carrying of the baby. All of them speaking about the possibility and the potential of this person having a baby. And physically, even down to your skeleton, you were designed for that purpose. Whether you have children or not, you have those tools that are ready, those resources. Men and women have endocrine uh, systems, but our hormones are different. We have different... You wouldn't be able to tell if this was the brain of a woman or a man, if you just looked at the brain. But the way a woman's brain works is very different. These are scientific facts. I'm not talking to you about, you know, in Psalms 22, verse 5, says that the woman's brain is different than the man's brain. I'm telling you medical research information. Neurologically speaking, yes, men and women have brains, but our brains function differently, complementarily, supplementary. We have an easier time as men being able to compartmentalize and focus one thing at a time. Women do everything. That's why home improvements take so long, right? One project is connected to another project that's connected to another project that's connected to another project. And that's how Home Depot became multi-million dollar industry, thanks to a woman's brain, right? <laughs> Leave it at that. <laughs> and our home is all the more beautiful because of my wife's brain. Listen. Your identity is at risk. Because if you're not sure what a male is, and you go to society for a definition of what a male is, society will tell you you choose. What is a female? And society's definition and version is such a limited perspective because it focuses on the genitalia and what is, can be done with it, instead of looking at the complete picture of what is sexuality. What does it mean that the Bible presents sexuality as a noun before a verb? It's simply this. We have robbed ourselves of what it means to be sexual by isolating it to just the behavior, bypassing the noun. I'm going to tell you right now that everything you do, if you're a man, everything you do is masculine. Everything you do is, is male. Because you can only do it as a man. And if you're a woman, everything that you do, you do as a woman. Because your brain, your skeletal system, your hormonal system, your endocrine system, all those things were made as a woman. And all those things were made for you as a man. So whatever you do, you do as a man. And that is a sexual being. So to say that I'm performing a sexual act on only one moment in my life experience, it's a very narrow view that the world has. And it tries to develop the entire identity of the human based on one slice of human experience. It's a very narrow view of humanity. Whereas the biblical worldview tells us, informs us that everything that I do, I do it as a man because that's my identity sexually. Yet, I cannot come to myself and say, well, being a man must mean this or that. If we would have gone up to the Philistines, the Philistines would have said, that's a man right there. Who would they be pointing to? Goliath. He's strong. He's scary. He screams. He can fight. No one can defeat him. 
So when God defines a man, he sends the reject little brother. That's a man. Because when God looked at David, he said, he is a man after my own heart. Not a boy. You want to know what a man is? We humans don't know. Sin has distorted what we think is female and what we think is male. The Philistines thought this is the epitome of masculinity. Our hero, our champion, Goliath. When God says, let me show you manhood, he sends a specific young boy. And you young boys, listen to this. This is manhood right here. David was not this anemic little eh, either. But he was not a Goliath. He was of such a status that his dad didn't even bring him for Samuel to consider him as a potential king. Yet God could see the heart of David. And this is what God saw. And this is what caused God to call David a man. This is from David's own testimony. When King Saul said, you're going to go fight him? What's your uh, curriculum vitae in battle? What's your resume for warfare? Remember what David said? Whenever a bear or a lion would do what? Take one of my lambs. I would chase it. I would risk my life for a little helpless animal. Because they were mine. I have plenty of other sheep, but when one was taken by a predator, I chased that predator down, killed it, and rescued my little lamb. Who does that sound like? That's manhood. Manhood involves self-sacrifice. Manhood involves caring for the weak and the helpless. That's a man. That's courageous. Even Saul, who was the tallest, did not go and fight Goliath because of fear of failure, fear of what other people think of me. That's what destroyed Saul. Saul was consumed by trying to appear to other people. Other people controlled Saul even though he was tall. No one controlled David, not even his brothers. His brothers told him, go back and take care of the sheep. Why are you here? But David got his identity as a man from God himself. Masculinity and femininity has nothing to do with beauty, aesthetics, or physical whatever. Because we have a lot of maladies and individuals that are born, unfortunately, with the effects of sin pronounced more in their experience than others. And God loves them still. And as a church, we are so unprepared to show grace and love to individuals that struggle with their sexual identity. We are decades behind. In being able to understand ourselves sexually, even as heterosexuals, we are still in diapers as far as understanding ourselves. That's why we have a difficult time preaching the gospel to individuals of other orientations and inclinations and presenting a wholesome, attractive Jesus to them. We are failing the world. We are failing it because we are failing in understanding it ourselves. Because as parents, we don't recognize our own discomfort with the subject and own it and say, Lord, your word says that everything you made was good, including this. If the Bible says that you blessed them and told them, be fruitful and multiply, that was a blessing. Why am I looking at it the way I am looking at it? Now you know. You are looking at sex through eyes that do not belong to the Bible. 
That is not how the Bible presents it. Sexual identity as a noun, as a source of who you are, is crucial before you can even understand what it means to experience the sexual experience. Before God tells humanity to be fruitful and multiply, he first mentions that he created them and then proceeds to identify them as male and female. God made humanity distinctively sexual, male, and female. So primarily speaking, listen carefully, sex is not something you do. Sex is something you are. Everything you do as a male, you will do as a male. And everything you do as a female, you will do as a female because that's how God made you to be, holistically, completely. So before you can express sex as an action, you must have discovered and understood sex as an identity, your identity. Of course, there's a lot of identical overlaps. We've already talked about this. We can identify these differences as God created and God designed identity that he gives to you as a male and as a female. Your sexuality is integral to your identity. Yes, there's millions of women. There's millions of men. But there's only one you as a man. There's only one you as a female. And though society may want to give freedom for people to pick how they want to express themselves, it's not really freedom. You know, I can't, without trying to minimize or being sensitive to people's plights, having lived, worked in the secular world for decades, many of my friends were not of the heterosexual realm. They were of everything else out there. And they hurt just like we hurt. They desired love and acceptance just like we do. But unfortunately, when I would talk to them about God, they felt that God was the furthest one that would ever want to have anything to do with them. And that notion, that idea, distanced them from the one who created them. Distance them from the one who made them to be and have an identity centered on him. It's interesting that in the Bible, I think it's extremely significant that in the Bible, out of all the disciples of Jesus, the one that manifested the greatest steadfastness, faithfulness, and courage were none of the male disciples. You know which one of Jesus' disciples demonstrated the greatest courage, tenacity, and self-abandonment for Jesus? And what was Mary's former profession? An exploiter and an exploited in this realm. What that shows us is that God sees the hurt that the misunderstanding and the misapplications and the misunderstandings in this subject has brought to humanity. He empathizes, sympathizes, and has compassion. And for us as a church, this should let us know that the people that we think will be furthest away and should be shunned and distance ourselves the furthest can be the most faithful followers of Jesus if they were to know Jesus for who he really is. And as a church, we need to have our hearts opened and comfortable in reaching and meeting these individuals where they're at and by the power of the Holy Spirit, lead them lovingly, gently to believe that God loves them. That God loves them. Did God love you while you were wallowing with the pigs in the pig's mires? 
we have to be willing to let the Bible guide our evangelistic approach to people when it comes to this subject, because this subject alone is causing the hearts of many individuals to close themselves to ever wanting to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives. And in doing so, they're depriving themselves of the one place where their identity can be discovered. Genesis 4.1, when the Bible describes sex, the act itself, it doesn't describe it the way we do it. The Bible uses the word knowing. And Adam knew his wife and she conceived. This is, by the way, the fruit of about 15 years of studying and presenting this in various church venues. And when I'm in front of young people, I kind of tell them what that verse means is not that Adam walked up to Eve and said, hey, what's your name? Eve, oh, nice to meet you. Now I know you. That's not what it means that Adam knew his wife because of the outcome of that knowing. She got pregnant. You don't get pregnant by knowing someone's name or phone number, right? Hope you know that much. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> but knowing is a very special word. Listen carefully. I can only be known by the people I choose to be known by. Because I control who I reveal myself to. Does that make any sense? The only people that will know me are the people that I reveal myself to. I mean, you can know my name, you may know my place of birth, but do you really know me? And if there's one person in this building that really knows me, she's not here right now, but you know who I'm going to talk about, right? Even more so than my parents at this point. And the reason is, is that for the past 13 years, I have been revealing myself to her more than to my parents. And I've changed. I'm not the same person. Thank you, Lord that I was 13 years ago, and I hope to not be in the future either. I hope that I continue to experience transformation in my life. There's a conundrum, there's a catch-22, though, in this equation of I can only be known when I reveal myself to that person, and vice versa. The only way that I can know someone else is if that person chooses to do what with me? Reveal themselves to me. It sounds simple, but it's not. It's not. This knowing takes place because I reveal myself, I express myself, I open myself to be known. But how can I express myself when I don't know myself? How can I express to be known when I am not even certain about myself? When I have questions about my identity, who am I? Who am I? The world is dying to answer that question for our children and our grandkids and ourselves even. And the answer the world gives us is based upon this very narrow experience that we have in the spectrum of our lives and saying, this is your entire identity right here. But I think experientially, most humans end up coming to the conclusion that that is not enough to identify me because I'm not doing that all the time. That is not the all in all of my experience. There's more to me than just my genitalia. There's more to me than just that aspect of my life. But what is it? Who am I? How can I know? Some of our young people are entering that crucial stage of self-discovery. And just because we turn 21 and just because we turn 31 or just because we turn 41 or 51 doesn't mean that we come to know ourselves. Age does not reveal to you who you are. 
Getting married will not reveal to you who you are. Your parents will not reveal to you who you are. They may reveal to you things that they recognize about themselves in you. You are just like your father. You are just like your mom. But that you're not completely your mom and you're not completely your dad. You're uniquely you. Who are you? And when you turn 10, 11, 12, 15, 20, 21, 27, that question more and more dominates your imagination. You are no longer satisfied with identifying yourself with a career. I'm an accountant. No, that's not who I am. One day I will retire. I was not always an accountant. I am who I was before I was an accountant. I will still be who I am after I'm an accountant. Who am I? If we are honest with ourselves, there may be people here this morning that were struggling answering who I am. Who I am. Your identity becomes crucial in understanding who you are if you ever expect to have a relationship with another human being intimately. Because the Bible does not describe sex as sex. It describes sex as knowing. And knowing requires a revelation of myself to that other person. How can I ever reveal anything when I don't really know myself? Are you following so far, church? This is why this idea of whatever you choose to be, be whatever it is, leaves people with really no real realm of how do I know I am who I say I am? Am I sufficiently to know who I am myself? Really the conclusion, the logical conclusion is just invent yourself. But I know that humans will never be satisfied with a self-induced definition of who they are. We'll just leave them hollow. It will leave them with more questions than answers. We're going to close this morning, and I want to ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Fourth Gospel, chapter 4. Don't get scared. We're just going to read straight through. Verses 7 through 30. Everything we talked about regarding sexuality, identity, and knowing ourselves. If I am to be known by someone else, I better know myself first. And how can I know myself first? Where can I get this information? Accurately, truthfully, honestly, clearly. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Are you guys there? John 4, 7 says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank it from it himself and his sons and his cattle? 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me of this water so I will not be thirsty nor come here to draw again. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, 
for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You people say that in Jerusalem is a place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. What we have just read is the experiential summary of all that we have talked about this morning about sex. We're going to go through the, this conversation, extracting this process. This woman begins addressing Jesus simply as, you are a Jew. You're a Jew. I can tell by your clothes, you're a Jew. Jesus begins to describe himself as being more than just an average Jew. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, oh, I'm not really sure who you are now. You must be more than a Jew. So in verse 12, she begins to ask, are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than sex? Are you greater than this? Are you greater than that? And Jesus says, of course I am. But she hasn't yet arrived to understand who she is speaking to. Verse 15, sir, give me this water. Jesus goes from being Jew to now being sir. So Jesus says to her, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. Now Jesus is graduating from sir. Now he's now a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. You're not just a Jew. You're not just a sir. Now you are a prophet. Jesus says the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now she says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 29, the woman says to the people in the city, come and see who told us, who told me. Look at the transition for 20, from 25 to 29. Messiah is going to tell us all things. But when Jesus finally reveals himself as the Messiah, she says, come see a man who has told me all things. So I have a question for you. What are the all things that Jesus has told this woman as the Messiah? What has Jesus revealed to this woman? You have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. Who is Jesus revealing to the woman? Herself. And simultaneously, who is Jesus revealing to the woman? Who he is. 
the woman discovered who she was not by what she was doing, but by who was talking to her. You are of infinite value to me. You are not a failed marriage. You are not a divorcee. You are not all the labels that LGBT and everybody else wants to put on you. That's not who you are to me. Your identity goes beyond your genitalia. Your, your identity comes because I have created you. I am your creator. You are my child. That is your identity. That is your identity. You are mine. I have died for you. This woman, desperate for an identity, sought to have the identity of her heart defined by another man, another husband, another husband, another husband, another husband. But if you were to ask her today, do you know who you are? She would say, I don't know who I am. I guess I must be a failure. I must have a horrible way of picking men. I must just have this curse of God because I cannot just find a good man. I'm so afraid of marriage now. I'm so afraid of committing to another man. I'm just living with this one because I'm expecting it to fail as well. Who are you this morning? You who are sitting in a pew in church, who are you? Can you answer yourself that question? You see, the world tells you, you will know yourself when you go into these journeys and pilgrimages of discovering yourself by seeing what's inside of you. You will not get much revelation. This woman was not told by Jesus, go into that mountain and meditate and you will find who you are. Jesus said to that woman, if you knew who it is that's speaking to you, you would ask him. And he said, I don't know who you are, but I'm going to ask, can you please give me? Can you please give me of this water that once I drink from it, I will never thirst again? And Jesus reveals to her who she is in the world's identity, but who she is to him. She's not repelled. She knows she's not rejected. For the first time in her life, here's someone that knows her deeply, knows all the wrinkles and warts in her life, and yet loves her like no one else has loved her before. That's how God feels about you. Do you believe that? If you're single, this is your time to know yourself. You will not know yourself once you graduate from college. You will not know yourself because you get 4.0 grades in school. The only way to know yourself is by getting to know your creator. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To resist and to reject the knowledge of Jesus Christ is to resist and to reject the knowledge of who you really are. And if you do not know who you really are, you are destining yourself for ongoing, repetitive, failed relationships. Not because God's angry at you, but because you will never be able to be known because you don't know yourself. But when you discover who God is, simultaneously you discover who you are. And your identity will be anchored as a man, as a female in God, in your creator. This is sexuality according to the scriptures. It's the tip of the iceberg. There's more that could be said. But as an appeal, 
I don't know what causes you to open this book or what causes you to not open this book. But as a pastor and as a friend, I'm appealing to you this morning. Open this book to discover who Jesus is. Just that. Open this book and pray, Father, show me who is your son Jesus. Because the pastor has just read that verse, that eternal life hinges in knowing you, and I can know you through Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I want to know Jesus. I want to see Jesus. That will be the reason for me pursuing you. Father, we have covered quite a bit of territory this morning. I'm not sure how it all has been received. Father, I pray your forgiveness if through my imperfections of communications, things have not been understood clearly. But Father, I do pray that the one takeaway that we all walk away from this is, I don't need to be married to experience sexuality. We experience it, Father, when just being males and females. But that is not enough, Father, to discover our identity. Our identity, Father, is anchored in discovering who you are. And the longer I prolong that experience, Father, the more at risk I put myself of having failed relationship after failed relationship. Father, I'm thankful for that story of that woman because I could fully understand her and the multiple failed relationships. But Father, after that day, I know that she no longer failed at relationships. She has found herself because she has found your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for those in this building that have yet to find you. Whether they are our spouse, our parents, or our children. I pray that you would save us, save our children, save our parents, save our family members that are indifferent and not wanting to know you. They think they know who you are, Father. I pray that through your spirit, we can have opportunities to show them who you truly are through Jesus Christ. And Father, us who consider ourselves to be saved, if we're honest with ourselves, Father, we know very little about you through Jesus. And because of that, Lord, we know very little about ourselves. Change that, Lord. Search us deeply. Reveal to us your son, Jesus, that we may more fully know ourselves. And in that discovery, Lord, love you more fully as you deserve. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen, Father. Amen. You have been listening to Ariel Roldan, pastor of Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Cadillac Church at 801 East Division Street in Cadillac, Michigan, and their church service begins at 11 a.m. Or visit the Lake City Church located at 5970 West Sanborn Road in Lake City, Michigan, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.